You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Everybody survived that game last night? My, my wife does not like football. She doesn't understand it. And in fact, I think Ohio State fans annoy her. Um, but about, you know, around halftime, she's like, sure, you just want to turn this off and go to bed? And, and I was like, I do, but I don't. And I don't know if I can sleep. Don't know if it's still on. But it all worked out, right? Um, so, yeah, that was good. Um, as Chris said, we are going to continue on in our series through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, uh, this is a really long series. Like, we started a long, I don't even know, maybe January last year, and we're about halfway through the book. And so, uh, let's keep going here this morning. Uh, but before we jump in, I just want to ask you a question, and the question is, have you ever been out somewhere, and somewhere out in public, and seen someone holding a religious sign that said something to the effect of, Repent or judgment is coming, or something like that. I'm sure most of you have, but just in case you haven't, I have a, a few pictures here to illustrate what I'm talking about. Let's see that first one. This is the, the classic uh, repent or burn sign. Um, let's see the, the next one here. Now, I've never seen this one before. It says, God does not love you just the way you are. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to make of that one theologically, but... Um, it's certainly original. Uh, let's see the next one here. Now this, this one's a little older, but this guy ain't messing around. He has two signs. Uh, the first one says, the end of the world is nigh. And the second one is, repent your sins. Uh, is, that, is that a sentence? What is that? <laughs> repent your sins. Um, so yeah, this is what I'm talking about. Again, maybe you've uh, been out somewhere and seen someone doing this. I remember uh, as a new Christian, I was going to a concert uh, down near OSU at the Newport, and uh, I was going to see one of those, uh, I was a newer believer, and I was going to see one of those semi-Christian bands. Uh, there was a lot of them in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, you know, the, the kind of thing where it's like, are you a Christian band? No, but we're Christians in a band. And uh, I think that that particular band that I saw that night was Lifehouse or someone like that. And I was in this really long line outside of the venue because they hadn't opened the doors yet, and so people just started lining up. And from across the street, across from High Street, there was a man wearing uh, one of these sandwich board signs where you got like a sign in the front, then you got like a chain, and then a sign in the back. And uh, the sign said something like, you know, repent now or judgment is coming. Uh, but not only was he wearing the signs, he also had a bullhorn, and he was yelling at us from across the street. He was yelling things like, you know, you're all going to hell, or something like that. And I, I just, you know, remember standing there thinking, what is this guy doing? I mean, we're, we're probably most of us in this line are Christians. Uh, we're going to see Lifehouse, after all. Um, but, but not only that, as a, as a new Christian, it was just really confusing. Because I was feeling like, is, should I be doing what he's doing? Is he right? Am I wrong? Like, what's the deal here? And actually, I just remember thinking things like, you picked the wrong concert, buddy. Uh, you should have done more research. Uh, you know, wait, you should have waited for the Slipknot or ACDC concert next week, you know, something like that. Um, but upon further reflection, I'm sure even for this guy, a band like Lifehouse was too far. It was a compromise. And so again, I don't know where you're at on that whole thing as far as someone holding a sign out in public trying to compel people. 
Uh, I'm sure for most of us, though, it makes us uncomfortable and is somewhat unattractive uh, for those of us who are Christians. And yet what we're going to see today in our passage this morning is that as Jesus finishes up this really long section of teachings that began all the way back at the beginning of chapter 12, that as he finishes up, he's pretty worked up. The tone of his voice is changing. You can hear the passion and even the frustration in his voice. And it's almost as if he's like one of these guys holding up a, a repent now or judgment is coming sign because both of those themes are what he focuses on here. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 12. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 49 through chapter 13, verse 9. If you need to borrow a pew Bible, it's found on page 872. But once you find it, go ahead and stand with me as I read today's passage. Again, Luke 12, starting in verse 49. Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that had already rekindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed, mingled with their sacrifices. He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He told this parable. man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. These are such sobering words. I pray today as we look at them, as we consider them, Lord, that you would give us soft hearts. Lord, you'd help us not to, to, to run away or to turn off our ears, but to look at them head on and to face them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide our time this morning, that you, your presence would be felt, Lord, that you would bring conviction of sin and, and help us to, to, to see and to turn to Jesus. I pray this in his name. 
So I already did this a little bit, but uh, let me just take a moment and reorient you uh, to the context of what's going on in this passage. So as I said a little bit ago, Jesus has been teaching a, a very long sermon that began all the way back at the beginning of chapter 12. For the last four weeks, we have been breaking it apart bit by bit. And in doing so, what we have seen is that Jesus has been bouncing back and forth from addressing his disciples to then addressing the crowd. And if you remember how chapter 12 starts out, it says this in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he, Jesus, began to say to his disciples first. So Jesus starts out chapter 12 addressing his disciples, but then in verse 13, someone from the crowd asked Jesus a question, and so he transitions from his disciples to the crowd. But then in verse 22, he jumps back to his disciples, and that's the section that Alex covered on not being anxious. The section that Nick covered last week was also directed towards the disciples and, and talking about uh, being prepared for his return. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to look at these five little sections that are broken down, and it's only the first one in verses 49 to 53 that will be directed towards the disciples, and then the rest will be aimed at the crowd. And it's important that as we read this chapter, and as you read this whole set of teachings, that you know who Jesus is speaking to. Because as we'll see, his tone is very different depending on who his audience is. And so let's jump into this first section here. Uh, look again at verse 49. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that were already kindled. So this is interesting. Jesus is using some very colorful language here, and he just comes out and says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now in the scriptures, fire typically symbols or represents one of two things. It either represents the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit, or it represents judgment. Now, based on what Jesus goes on to say in this passage, in the context of it, most scholars think that it's, it's very clear that Jesus is using the word fire here to refer to judgment. Now, if that's true, what Jesus is saying here is that one of the reasons he came to the earth was to bring judgment. And yet, when you read it, there's a sense in which he is frustrated because it hasn't happened yet. That's why he says there would that were already kindled. Now, saying that he's frustrated, that judgment hasn't happened yet, I don't think that that means that Jesus is hungry for vengeance, that he you know, just can't wait to smite all of us poor sinners. Rather, I think he's longing for judgment because he is longing for the world to be made right again. He's longing for sin and injustice and oppression and ultimately even death to be done away with. And he knows that those things can only happen through judgment. And so again, he says here, this is one of the reasons why I came. Now, some have argued here that the judgment he's referring to uh, specifically uh, is directed towards uh, the judgment of Israel for rejecting him as Messiah. So that you could be thinking here of 70 AD, we're not exactly sure. But either way, we know that he's talking about judgment. I think both of those scenarios, whether he's thinking of uh, the eternal judgment and the end times, or whether he's thinking of the judgment that Israel would face, I think either one fits the context. But, but either way, he continues on in verse 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, in terms of the baptism that Jesus is talking about here, he's almost certainly talking about his upcoming death 
and suffering on the cross. When we talk about judgment, Jesus himself is going to be plunged into the waters of judgment at the cross. See, at the cross, Jesus took on humanity's sin, and as a result, he experienced the full weight of the Father's wrath and judgment. And so part of this baptism he's about to experience is a baptism of judgment, and, and that's what, the reason we know this is talking about his death is because uh, in, in Mark 10, 38, Jesus makes a parallel between the cup of suffering he's about to drink and the baptism of suffering he's about to endure. So because of that, what Jesus is saying here is that this baptism, which he's about to go through, he's completely focused on it. As we've already said uh, earlier, I think back in chapter 9, Jesus uh, begins to uh, head towards Jerusalem. And he's on his way to his death, and so at this point, he's completely focused on it, and he's saying here, I'm distraught until this mission is accomplished. One commentator said this about Jesus' words here. He said, Jesus' commitment to God's will was total. He was completely governed by the desire to complete his baptism, even though it meant suffering death in Jerusalem. Now what Jesus says next here in verse 51, I think for most of us, is shocking, uh, particularly during this Christmas season. He says this, Do you think that I have come to get peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather... Division. Now, wait, wait, wait. I, I thought, you know, we were supposed to have peace on earth and mercy mild. I thought we were supposed to hail the heaven-born prince of peace. I mean, didn't we just sing those words last week when we sang Heart the Herald? Or when we sang, yeah, Heart the Herald Angels Sing? So what's the deal? I mean, even earlier in Luke's own gospel, Jesus' birth, when it was announced by the angels, they declared glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So which is it? Did Jesus come to bring peace on earth, or did he not? Well, the honest answer is it just depends. And the reason it depends is because when you come to Christ, you absolutely experience peace within, and you experience peace with God. But at the same time, for some of us at least, when we came to Jesus, we also experienced a lack of peace externally. What I mean by that is that for some of us, when we came to Jesus, we, again, we experienced inner peace with God. We even experienced peace with ourselves in a way that we maybe never thought was possible. But then, as I've already said, some of us also, uh, at that same time, experienced all kinds of external conflict and relationships with those closest to us. You see, here's the thing about Jesus, and this is really what he's getting at here. He is a dividing line. Every human being has to decide what they are going to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the reality is, is to choose anything but him alone is to reject him. To ignore him is to reject him. To not make a decision about what to do with him is to make a decision. And because that's true, there will always be this chance that those closest to you will reject you or divide themselves from you based on your desire follow Jesus. You see, for some of you, coming to Jesus made your marriage a lot more complicated. And it made it more complicated because your spouse doesn't embrace the same faith as you. And because of that, and it maybe, maybe you came to Christ after you were married, because of that now, your spouse feels like you're not who you, you aren't uh, the person that I married. You've changed, and I don't really like how you've changed. Maybe they feel like I didn't sign up for this. 
Well, so maybe some of you experienced that. Maybe for others it wasn't your spouse, but rather it was with someone like your parents. And because of your decision to follow Jesus, now there's major conflict in your family. You see, I know that this passage is hard to take, and I'm sure it makes some of us uncomfortable. Jesus' words here make us uncomfortable, but I just love how realistic he is. Jesus doesn't paint an unrealistic picture of what it looks like to follow him. No, rather, he is very upfront with us. And what he says is that to follow him, there will be a cost. He says there's a cost to following him, and that for some of us, it may cost us in the area of relationships, including the ones that are most dear to us. And even with that being true, Jesus is saying here, I'm worth it. I mean, look, I mean, look what he says in verse 52. From now on in one house, there'll be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will, be, they will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Maybe that bit about the in-laws is not all that shocking, but uh, the rest of it, that's hard stuff. It's hard stuff. I mean, you know, I, I know for me personally, I didn't, uh, when I came to faith, it didn't negatively affect me in terms of my family. But it did affect me in terms of my closest friends. In fact, my coming to Jesus created a pretty big rift between me and my friend group. See, I started following the Lord at, at the age of 19. And at that time, my closest friends were all my buddies from high school. And when I told them that I had become a Christian and that I wanted to be serious about my faith, they just couldn't understand what I was doing. In fact, they uh, felt like I had betrayed them. As a result, there was, uh, they really misunderstood me. They accused me of thinking that I was better than them. And, oh, you don't drink anymore. You think you're better than us. And the fact that I didn't want to do some of the things that we had always done really frustrated them. In fact, once uh, early on in this process, right, right afterwards, they uh, invited me over for a hangout. When I showed up, everybody was already there. And I walk in the back door of one of their houses and on the TV, they had a pornography playing. And they were all just sitting around watching it like nothing weird was happening. And then after a few seconds, they all broke out laughing. Uh, because the whole reason they had put it on was to mess with me and to, to, to try to make fun of me. And they wanted to see how I would respond now that I was a Christian. And really, that was kind of the beginning of the end of our friendship. I, I, I tried to hang on, but I just... Uh, I'm not saying this is right, but just for me at the time, I knew I needed to, to separate myself from them and, and find new friends who uh, were embracing the same desires that I had in following the Lord. And, and so again, what, I, what Jesus is saying here is, look guys, this uh, is going to cost you. He's saying part of my ministry, part of why I came is to cause division. People will either love me and follow me or they won't. And if you want to love me, if you want to follow me, it may cost you. So in other words, as we think about all this, the, the Christmas carols that we sing, the words we read from the angels, they, they are right. Jesus does bring peace on earth. But we also have to remember that as he says here in this passage, and as we know from our own experience, Jesus, by the very nature of who he is, he brings division. Now from this point, Jesus will shift in verse 54, and he'll start to address the crowd again. So let's keep going to see what he says. Look at verse 54. 
He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? I want you to notice Jesus' tone of voice here. See, with the disciples, Jesus is firm, but he's also gentle. Remember what uh, the verse 32 that Alex shared uh, a few weeks ago where he said to his disciples, Fear not, little flock. So again, Jesus is gentle with them, but with the crowd, he's a little different. With the crowd, his tone takes on a, a little bit, it's more of a rebuke in nature. What Jesus says here is, look guys, you know how to look at the sky and you know how to determine the weather. But you can't look at all that I have said, all that I have done, and recognize that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God. You can look at the sky and you know how to respond, you know how to prepare for the weather, but you can't look at the signs that I have done. You can't look at who I am and know how to respond and prepare. So he just says to them, you hypocrites. You see, there's a sense in which Jesus here, in, in verse 54, as he turns from the disciples to the crowd, and as he finishes up this long uh, teaching that he's been giving, there's a sense in which, as some have argued, that at this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is beginning his final appeal to the nation of Israel to repent and to believe in him. Yet what he points out here in calling them hypocrites is that the signs of the times are everywhere. The signs which point to Jesus are obvious, but at the same time, so is Israel's blindness. Again, the fact that Jesus calls them hypocrites indicates that the crowd's sin was not due to simple ignorance, but rather it was due to willful ignorance. What I mean by that is that the crowd's problem was an unwillingness to interpret the times, rather than an inability to interpret the times. So, you see, even though Jesus, as the Messiah, didn't come and do all of the things that people uh, thought that he would do, he didn't quite live up to their expectations. You know, they wanted him to be a political leader. They wanted him to, to kick Rome out. But his kingdom didn't come in that way, and so he didn't live up to their expectations. But even still... In his life and in his ministry, there was an overwhelming amount of signs and wonders and fulfilled prophecy to make it obvious that he was, in fact, Israel's true Messiah. Yet, by and large, the people and the nation of Israel refused to acknowledge him as such, including almost all of the religious leaders. And so as we keep working through this, what we're going to see is that Jesus is warning them He's warning the nation of Israel that time is running out. So let's keep moving here. Look at verse 57. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So Jesus, he's, he's still in this place of rebuke with the crowds. And he begins to warn them and to urge them to do what it takes to settle their debts before they have to stand before the judge. So Jesus here is using this little word picture of a, of a legal or a civil dispute. And he's trying to help them understand just how serious the situation is. 
But at the same time, I think he's also, through this word picture, trying to show them that there's still hope. There's still time for them to get right with God. You see, as we look at this little picture or this parable, we need to be careful not to pick it apart or, or uh, to try to, to figure out who is who in the, in the parable. What I mean is we, we shouldn't try to figure out who corresponds to the adversary and who's the magistrate and who's the officer. I think those are really there just to fill out the story. Rather, the point of the parable is that God is the judge. And all of us are headed towards Judgment Day, but right now, we live in this period where we can still settle our accounts before it's too late. So because that's the case, Jesus is begging, he's urging us to settle our debts. And it's clear from this passage and others like it that, that the debts that Jesus is talking about are the debts that are occurred through our sin against God. Now, some have gotten tripped up on verse 59, but we should not see verse 59 as a, an allusion to purgatory. Purgatory is not something that the Bible teaches. You see, the reality is, is that our debt against God is too great to ever be paid for by ourselves. The only way our debt can be paid is through Jesus' death and resurrection. Therefore, the central idea of verse 59 is not that one can get out of hell, but that you and I will be held accountable for our sins. You see, our sins are kind of like college loans. They will be repaid. There's no such thing as permanent default. Either your debt will be paid by Jesus and his blood, or your debt will be paid by you in hell for all eternity. I know that it makes us uncomfortable. We don't talk about hell as much as maybe we used to in the church in you know, the last, I don't know, however many years. It makes people uncomfortable. People don't like this, but Jesus, this is what he's talking about. Now in the next section, starting in chapter 13, verse 1, someone from the crowd pulls the trick that you often do when someone is rebuking you and, and, and you're super uncomfortable. What does he do? He changes the subject. Or at the very least, you, you try to point to someone else. Well, what about them? And that's what happens here. Look at verse 1. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Now, in terms of this incident with the Galileans and, and Pilate killing them and, and mixing their blood with their sacrifices in the temple, we don't have an, a, a specific extra-biblical account of this incident. But the Jewish historian Josephus and, and other first-century historians like him do record multiple atrocities that were done by Pilate and other Roman leaders against the Jewish people during this time. And so most likely this specific one is not mentioned in, in some other history books because <coughs> it just didn't get enough attention. Maybe it wasn't on a large enough scale to even be recorded. Uh, it, I hate to bring this up, but it's, it's similar to even in our own day, maybe something like with mass gun shootings. 
And we've had so many at this point that they're, that they're so common that honestly it's hard to keep them straight or to remember them all. And so perhaps this incident is something like that. Now the point that the person in the crowd I think is, is trying to make here in bringing this up is that they're trying to get Jesus to comment on whether or not he thinks that this horrible tragedy that happened was a, a judgment by God for these Galilean sin. But what we see here in this passage is that Jesus just isn't having it. In other words, what the person from the crowd is asking is, Jesus, did these people get what they deserve? And again, Jesus here, he just, he just destroys this way of thinking. And honestly, this type of thinking is so common. It was the, the dominant thinking in Jesus' day. And, and honestly, it's still the, view, uh, the dominant view in our own day. We just call it karma. Again, it's this idea that if you're good, good things will happen to you. If you're bad, bad things will happen to you. And yet Jesus is just like, no, that is not the way that it works. And in fact, he even brings up a, a totally different incident, which didn't involve political violence, but rather a, a natural catastrophe, a, a sort of freak accident with this tower collapsing. What I think Jesus is doing here, besides just destroying this idea of karma, is he's doing what he did earlier in, the cha in chapter 12, uh, at the beginning, he's, he's trying to get us to think about life beyond death. He's trying to get us to think about eternity and eternal judgment. See, at the beginning of chapter 12, when he's talking to his disciples, he, he tells them, do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill both body, who can cast both body and soul into hell. And here he's essentially doing the same thing with the crowd. He's saying, look, don't worry about when or how you or someone else might die. I mean, the reality is that the way that life works is, is you might die in a tragic death or you might die at the age of 90 in your sleep. But in one sense, that really doesn't matter. What matters is, are you ready for judgment? Have you repented and turned to God or have you not? Because if you haven't, you are set up to perish. I really like how commentator Daryl Box summarizes this passage here. He says, there is a more fundamental issue than them and their sin. Mortality is evidence of the presence of sin in our world. More important than the timing or cause of death is this. Only repentance can change death from a tragic end into a bridge, into a new kind of life. This event shows life's fragility. Disaster looms for the unresponsible. Now right after this, Jesus launches into a parable about a fig tree. And he says this in verse 6. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it, but he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this tree, fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year, also uh, until I can dig around it and put manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Now as I told you earlier, there is no doubt here that Jesus is making an appeal to the nation of Israel as a whole to repent and to embrace him as their Messiah. In this parable here, as he wraps up, this is an, an explicit example of that. 
See, all throughout the Old Testament, a fig tree was symbolic of the people and nation of Israel. And here you have Jesus talking about a fig tree that is barren, a tree that will not produce fruit. And the owner of this tree is super frustrated by it, and he's ready to chop it down. And yet the vine dresser or the gardener in the passage here is pleading that the tree be given just a little bit more time. That he be allowed to, to give the tree some special attention to, to try to, to fertilize it and to try to help it produce fruit. So the owner agrees and he gives the tree just a little bit more time. But he says, if at the end it doesn't produce fruit, it will be cut down. You see, the tension and the parable that the owner is facing is either he leaves a tree in the ground that's using up vital nutrients but isn't producing fruit, or he cuts it down and he plants a new one. Now earlier in Luke, John the Baptist issued a similar warning to the people of Israel when he called them to repent. In Luke chapter 3 verse 7, John the Baptist says this, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. <coughs> now here we have Jesus just a few years after that. He's at the end of his ministry. He's on his way to the cross. And yet, unfortunately, even after three full years of full-time ministry, by and large, the people of Israel have rejected him. <laughs> They have not repented. They have not honored him as the Son of God, the Messiah. And even after he is crucified, even after he is convincingly raised from the dead, the book of Acts will show us that even then Israel continued in their unbelief. That the nation by and large rejected him. And in the end they were judged. The fig tree was cut down in 70 AD when the Romans attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Now, there's a lot that can be said about 70 AD and the significance of that, and ultimately what that means for the people of Israel, but we don't have time to get into it, and, and plus it's, it's very controversial and, and somewhat complicated, and so as always, you can ask Pastor Chris after the service what everybody thinks. But again, uh, the, the point here of this passage is that time is running out. God is showing Israel patience. But we must not confuse patience with favor or acceptance. And I think that that's a really important point. Because the same can be true in our own lives. God could be showing you patience right now. Things might be going good in your life and you think, you know what? I know that there's some things about my life that aren't right, that I'm not really following God in. But, but hey, everything's working out. Do not confuse patience with favor and acceptance. I really like what David Garland said about this passage. He wrote this. Since the blow has not fallen, wrongdoers may fool themselves into thinking that they have escaped the divine punishment due them, or that others are the ones who are due the punishment. For this reason, Jesus struggles to pierce Israel's false sense of security and to get the people to produce the fruit of repentance. Now as we close here, as we think about these five little sections, and really as we think about this whole long set of teaching by Jesus all the way through chapter 12 into chapter 13, I think one of the main applications coming out of all of this is for you and I to do some self-evaluation here. 
I mean, Jesus has just spent 68 verses teaching his disciples and the crowd, and his main emphasis has been on divine judgment that is to come. What he says is that unless you repent, unless you trust in him for salvation, you will find yourself outside of the kingdom of God. And so I just wonder, are there some of us in here today who are in this place where we, we know the gospel? We've heard it many times. We uh, maybe even think that we believe that it's true. And yet we have not truly settled things with God. Perhaps some of us are in this place like the guy in verse 57 where he's not settled with his accuser yet. He's, he's on the way and, and whether he realizes it or not, he's on his way to go before the judge. Maybe some of us are in a place like I was for many, many years. See, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up going to church. I knew the gospel. I heard it many times. I wouldn't even have said that I believed it, but there was still this part of my life that was not fully surrendered to Jesus. You see, I used to think to myself a lot, particularly during those middle school and high school years, that, that, that I knew that I wasn't right with God. I knew that I still had this debt to pay, that my sins were, were still with me. But I used to just think, you know, I know I'm not right with God, but I, but I, I will one day. One day I'll get right with Him. I have, I have plenty of things to, to settle with Him. Or I have plenty of uh, time to settle with Him. Perhaps when I'm older, you know, when I become an adult, or maybe, ideally, just wait till my deathbed, you know, like that. Get it in in the last five seconds before I go out. You see, I thought, I just, let me just enjoy the world a little bit. I want to fit in with my peers. I don't want to be, you know, the overly religious guy in my group of friends or in my school. And so because of that, I just thought I'll continue to wait. You know, what Jesus is saying here in this passage in multiple different ways is don't wait. Repent now. Turn to him now. Settle with your accuser now. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is promised to no one. See, you and I, we can very easily end up like one of these Galileans. Or we can end up like one of the ones in the tower that fell. And as we already said, life is fragile. Mora uh, mortality is inevitable. And divine judgment is final. So, since all of this is true, you and I, we have a decision to make. Will we turn, will we repent, and come to Jesus? Or will we not? Because again, as I've already said, either Jesus will pay for your sins, or you will pay for your sins by spending eternity in hell. See, we have to understand, we have sinned against a holy God. And as a result, judgment must take place. However, though, through Jesus, through his death on the cross, he took on the judgment that you and I deserve. And when we repent, when we put our faith and our trust in Him, we settle our debts. And therefore, when we do that, we can stand before the judge one day, and we can be confident that we will hear, that we will hear, and we will be declared not guilty. You see, we started out our message this morning talking about, and even criticizing the type of person who would uh, maybe hold up a sign that says, Repent now, or judgment is coming. And yet, while we may disagree with their method, the reality is, as we've seen today, the message is in fact true. And I know most of us in here are Christians, and we've 
done this already. We've settled our debts with God. And I also know that for myself, I sat through a lot of church services without really knowing Jesus. I walked a lot of aisles to pray a prayer. I, I had sat through Sunday school class and small group and these things, and yet I did not know him. So I just want to challenge you to take a moment and to, to be honest with yourself. And just before the Lord say, Lord, I, I don't know. Maybe I don't know you. Maybe I fooled myself into thinking that, that, that I do, but, but really I can just look at these things in my life and just see that there's really no evidence. There's no fruit. There's no evidence of repentance. You see, repentance, as one author said, is it's not an emotion or a mere mental assent to a proposition. It's a reorientation to a new life. To repent is not merely to regret things that we have done or to apologize for them or to recognize a wrong has been committed. To repent is to agree that a change of direction is required and then to respond accordingly. So if you think that that's you, then I just want to urge you to repent now. Turn to Jesus right now. You can just forget me talking. Just bow your head and pray and say, Lord, I want to be right with you. I want to settle things. I want to receive you. I want to have my sins forgiven. You can do that now. Now for others of us in here who we know we've done that, we know that we've settled things, we know we have peace with God, then my application for us is just very simply this morning, just, to, just enjoy salvation. Just rest in all that Jesus has done for you. My reading plan this week took me to the book of 1 John. And as I was uh, thinking about this teaching and, and thinking about Judgment Day and, and all that Jesus has accomplished for us through his death and how we've been rescued from the wrath of God, as I thought about all that, I was just overwhelmed. And I came across this passage in 1 John 4 that really, I think, ties all of this together. And 1 John 4, 7 says this. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and His love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us His Spirit as proof that we live in Him and He in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more and more perfect. So listen to this. So we will not be afraid of the day of judgment. But we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in the world. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to live in confidence. I want you to not be afraid on the day of judgment. Jesus has fully 
taken away our sins. He came to be the Savior of the world. And so let's just rejoice in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these precious words. Father, thank you for sending Jesus as a sacrifice, as a, a propitiation to take away our sins. Thank you, Lord, that, that we live in this time period where we can settle our debts before it's too late. Thank you, Lord, that you provided a way when there was no way. Thank you that when we trust Jesus, when we receive him, he becomes an atonement for our sins. And so, Lord, I just pray, if there's anyone here who has not done that, who has not settled their debts before you, that the Holy Spirit, you would bring conviction of sins... And you would lead them into the way of everlasting. Father, for those of us here who know you, I just pray you would fill us with the joy of the Spirit. God, the joy of our salvation. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here who that's become stale. Maybe they started following you a long time ago. Maybe they're just in a place of discouragement. I pray that you would fill them with the joy of their salvation this morning. Father, as we continue to sing, help us just to rejoice in all that you are. God, we're so prone to focus on the here and now. God, help us to have that eternity set in our hearts this morning. Help us to turn our eyes to that day of judgment where we can stand before you in confidence. And we can be assured that we'll hear those precious words, well done, good, and faithful servant. Help us to focus on that in Jesus' name. During this first song, we're going to take our offering there. So let's continue to worship the Lord as we live and as we glorify singing as 